Well, good morning. Good to see each of you today. Uh, real quick, congratulations to Sam and Emily on their recent engagement. And uh, we praise the Lord for that. And thankful for the protection of uh, this week, specifically of Ben Murray. Uh, we prayed for him specifically. Uh, he was in the hospital for several days. And we thank the Lord for hearing our cries to him and intervening and granting life and health. So a lot to praise the Lord for today. Uh, open with me to the book of Jonah. After Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, we finally arrive at what feels like familiar territory, right? So, so let me ask our children uh, two questions. Everybody knows that the book of Jonah is about a great big... Okay, I... <laughs> the big kid says whale... Right? Fish. That's what we tend to think. Um, it's actually about a great big God of mercy. And uh, the fish gets all the highlights and grabs the headlines. And in doing so, sometimes we, we miss the purpose and the benefit of the book. Uh, how about another question? We all know that this story involves a very cruel... And it does... But more cruel than the city, right, Nineveh, the Assyrians, it involves a very cruel prophet. Okay, Jonah. For the, for the most part, it's familiar. However, it may be the most well-known but most misunderstood book in your Bible. We like happy endings, and that's why most children's stories and many sermons stop at chapter 3. We love chapter 3 because Jonah finally obeys... Right? The, the fish is long gone, swam back out into the sea, and Jonah obeys, and the Ninevites repent, and we stop there. Happy ever after. But we don't have the luxury of removing chapter 4. And chapter 4 is not really a happy ending. Um, not for Jonah and not for the Ninevites, because in a few books later, uh, we'll be looking at the book of Nahum, which is also God's dealings with the Ninevites. Okay, so if you're looking for a happy ending, Jonah's not really the book to go to. Jonah is much more than a runaway prophet with a great fish story. So what I hope to do, and got this idea from a small commentary that Matt let me borrow, I simply want to retell the story first. I mean, we could read it. We could read all four chapters. I simply want to retell the story, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 4, and then I want to make the applications to our own life, the theological implications and the applications to our life at the end. So this will be a, a little different this morning. Jonah, we find out from Second Kings, is in his homeland, enjoying ministry among his own people. And out of nowhere... God's voice says, go to your enemies and tell them that I've had enough of them. It's basically the message. Tell them a divine warrior is on his way. And Jonah, in his own homeland, in comfort among his own people, uh, prophesying their borders being extended at the expense of their enemy, is now called by Yahweh to go to Nineveh. And he packs his bags and he goes down to the harbor. 
But that's not the way to go to Nineveh. Matter of fact, he gets on a boat on a ship that's sailing nearly five times as far away from Nineveh as he could go. And it's in the present day area of Spain. Tarshish is about five times farther away. And he says twice in this account that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah gets creative. He spends his own money for a ticket. He gets on a ship and he assumes that God's not where? God's not in Spain. Okay, You ever think like that? However, God's grace will not be stopped by a disobedient man, even a Hebrew prophet, just like God's grace will not be stopped by disobedient men in pulpits. Jonah is asleep. Michael read that for us this morning. God appoints a storm and Jonah is asleep. Do you know it's possible to be at peace and get good rest in disobedience to God? That peace is not a final indicator on whether you made a right decision or not? The captain realized this is an unusual storm. He figures someone is at odds with their God. He goes and he wakes up Jonah. Jonah, backed into a corner, finally admits he's the guilty party. Refusing to repent, he suggests his own death. Throw me over. Because, see, we have knowledge of the story that Jonah didn't have. The sailors had no idea, just like Jonah had no idea that underneath the surface of the water, God had, like he had appointed a storm, he had also appointed another vessel that is going to take Jonah back to where he started. Jonah actually accepts death rather than repent. They hurl Jonah overboard and the storm stops. Pagan sailors who at first were calling out to their gods, little g, now call out to Yahweh. So Jonah is found out. And now God is found out by the sailors. Do you know God is still having his way? God is still showing mercy. He's still showing grace, even in the path of disobedience from Jonah. And that's where the chapter ends. Verse 17, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, as the fish begins to take Jonah back, this is chapter 2, from this dark, dank, smelly fish stomach, Jonah finally prays. Somewhere along the line, we have confused the story of Jonah with Pinocchio. How many of you remember Pinocchio? And I'm not talking about when he lies, with, you know, the nose. I mean, that, that's Pinocchio, yes. But if in the story, Pinocchio and Geppetto are, find themselves in Monstro's stomach. Monstro is Portuguese for whale, and it's a mixture between a blue whale and a sperm whale. It's kind of its own, you know, Disney oddity. And there is Geppetto, kind of, you know, his boat inside the whale. He's got, he's got a desk, a writing desk. He's got a little lamp, right? He's breathing just fine, and he's trying to figure a way of escape. And somewhere, even in our children's stories, we have presented this idea that Jonah is in the belly of, it doesn't say a whale, the Hebrew word for whale is not incorporated, but inside this large fish, kind of warming himself by a fire with s'mores and hot dogs. Okay, but chapter 2 says Jonah's in distress. He is in the area of a fish that is designed to digest things. 
It's dark. He can hardly breathe. He is probably shocked that he is conscious and he hasn't died yet. After a three-day journey, three days in what became a vessel of salvation for Jonah. And Jesus is going to draw back to this. He's going to say, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I will be three days and three nights in the grave, right, in the belly of the earth, because that in its own way is the vessel for our salvation too, that Jesus would die. After a three-day journey, God speaks not to Jonah, but to the fish. And the fish obeys. Right? At least somebody in the story is obeying God. The fish obeys God. The winds obey God. The storm obeys God. The worm in chapter 4. You don't know much about the worm because we stop at chapter 3. The worm obeys God. So the fish does deserve some credit. Just not as much credit as we give them. Into chapter 3, once again, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. God is patient. He recalls Jonah. Same place, same task. And this time Jonah is compelled to go. Why? Why does Jonah go this time? We're not told. But I think it is because of the devastating traumatic experience he just had in the belly of the fish. And so he is compelled to go and be an instrument of God's grace, even against his will. What would a man look like after being in the belly of a fish for three days? Sober? Wide-eyed? Bleached? In disarray? And without any warning, a bleached prophet shows up at the gates of Nineveh, a violent and wicked city who worships the fish goddess Nanshe, the daughter of Ea, the goddess of fresh water. They also worship Dagon, the fish god, who was represented as half man, half fish. And all of a sudden, he gains a hearing because of his fish story. Jonah arrives at the city and he preaches his simple message of doom. In Hebrew, it's a five-word sermon. You can walk through the city, they say, three days' breadth is what the Scriptures say. And he walks in about a day and he cries out, doom, no grace, no hope, no possibility of repentance. He just says, God's going to destroy you. And the reaction of the people is what is on record as being the largest revival in human history. Everyone from king to cattle fasts. They actually made their cattle fast. Everyone from peasant to king turned from their evil ways and called out to Yahweh. They sat there humbled, fearful, expectant, and God in His mercy, when He saw them turn, grants mercy. But then there's chapter 4. Jonah is not pleased with the turn of events and his anger is finally exposed. And Jonah lets God know exactly how he feels. And several times God says, do you do well to be angry? 
And Jonah, in this like mini Hebrew prophet toddler tantrum, says, yes, I do well to be angry. The first time God asks him, Jonah doesn't respond. He's so angry, he's just kind of like, I'm not going to respond to that. And so because he doesn't respond, God then appoints a plant. Right? Jonah had gone out onto the hill after preaching his five-word sermon. He goes out on the hill and he builds a little structure for shade. And he sits there waiting for God's justice. Apparently the, the little tabernacle that he had built did not provide enough shade because God allowed a plant to grow up and shade Jonah's head. And this is the first time in the Scriptures, in this book, it says that Jonah was glad. He rejoiced exceedingly. Listen to Jonah's voice in our own heart. If God is not going to give people what they deserve in ways consistent with their conduct, then God is fickle and unpredictable, and therefore life is absurd. Death is to be preferred to this lunacy. He says twice, I'd rather die. Just take my life. But God is treating Jonah with the same grace he intends to extend to a cruel and wicked people. And yet Jonah rejoices in grace when it's extended to him. But when it's extended to his enemies, he's angry. Well, God then appoints a worm to kill the plant so the shade is gone. And then he appoints a scorching east wind which burns Jonah. And Jonah is burning Outside and in his heart. This time he responds. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? Yes, I do well to be angry about the plant. Angry enough to die. So what's the problem? The book ends with a question, and we're going to look at that in a second. But what's the problem? Jonah's not happy with how God's running his world. Jonah thinks he has a better grasp on God's justice than God does. Jonah thinks he can determine who should receive grace and who shouldn't. Therefore, Jonah doesn't like God's plan and he launches off towards Spain. What God is teaching him is that he has the right to respond to his creation as he desires. Storms, fish, wind, plants, and more importantly, people. And the point is, God has a right to extend mercy to the Ninevites, whether Jonah likes it or not. The book ends with a question. The book ends with Jonah being angry. The book ends with the Assyrian king calling a fast for the entire nation. And there is a question. And the question is this. Should I not have pity on the Ninevites? The area that Jonah was called to is present-day Northern Iraq, if we could get that slide up. Sorry, we're all trying to control it. And just below that, you would have Israel, Jerusalem, and Joppa right on the coast. And he's called to go up there where present-day Mosul is. And instead, he launches out. So here's the big idea. And, and Jonah's going to actually confess this in his prayer as he's in the belly of the fish. He says, salvation is of the Lord. And it doesn't matter who gets in the way or who disobeys or who tries to thwart God's purpose. Salvation is of the Lord. 
God is eager to save. He pursues those with grace who resist him. His mercy is profound and extends to all people from every tribe and language and people and nation on earth, even violent and wicked people. But instead of going up to Nineveh and obeying God, he disobeys God. Now, the ship didn't make it that far, but it was far enough away that the fish took three days to get back and finally straighten out Jonah. So here's what's happening, just so we understand the book. And I want to parallel chapter one and three and, and chapter two and four. Jonah is called. He's recalled. He disobeys. Then he obeys. There are consequences for disobedience and obedience. Grace is shown in that Jonah is spared. Grace is shown in that Nineveh is spared. Chapter two and four, there's prayer. Both chapters are dominant with prayer. We're in chapter two. Jonah praises. Why? Because his life was spared. In chapter four, he complains another form of prayer because whose life was spared? The Ninevites. And then the word of God, God speaks to the fish and then the word of God, God speaks to Jonah. The first couple of verses, look at Jonah one, are going to highlight that the two main characters in this are Jonah and God. And the problem is actually highlighted bigger than the two people because the problem is a theological conflict that Jonah is having with God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is a believing man. Jonah is a man of faith. And he knows God. And what he's running from is not something he doesn't know. He's not running from the unknown He's running from something he knows to be true of God. He's running from something he knows to be true of God's character. That's why chapter 4 is so important. Jonah's going to tell you why he ran. Even though Jonah is a man of faith, he disobeys. And on that point, and I want us to, because we can, we can come to this book and say, well, I've never run from God that far. I've never been swallowed by a fish. I've never been called to go preach to my enemies. So really, how is this book even relevant to me? It's relevant because obedience to God determines the extent to which, you, to which you worship God as Lord. And on the point at which you disobey is the point at which something else is Lord. The point at which Jonah disobeyed, chapter 1, we're not even at verse 4 and he already disobeys, is the point at which Jonah has said, Yahweh, you are not Lord in this area of my life. And he runs. Something else is worth more when we disobey God. Jonah reasons grace granted to the guilty is unacceptable. What Jonah believes is that God is not being just. This week, for the first time looking at Jonah, I saw parallels with Jonah and Habakkuk. Where Habakkuk cries out and says, God, where's your justice? Your arm is shortened. You're not executing justice like we think you should. 
evil people are getting away with it. Not only are they getting away with it, you're going to send them mercy? God, this is not, this is not how I expected you to be. And now I'm wondering if you're even worthy of worship. Why? Because we believe God is not being just. Here's Jonah's problem. The indiscriminate extension of repentance and grace to people outside of his covenant community is unacceptable. But Jonah is creature, not creator. Let me read a quote from Terence Freedom. If the God upon whom you have pinned all your hopes disappoints you, if you have given your life over to God and there are no evident benefits issuing from that commitment, if God seems rather to be extending that blessing to others unrelated to their faith or daily conduct, and then if you have your hopes dashed and are asked to go and offer those same hopes to others who have obviously trampled all over God's law, then indeed you, like Jonah, may just decide that it is futile after all and that with such a God as your God, death is to be preferred. See, that's how soul-searching the message of Jonah is. It is the dangerous hardening of unbelief. In chapter 2, the Lord speaks to the fish. God is still in control. He doesn't mess up on the details. And God shows Jonah the very mercy Jonah thinks the Ninevites should not receive. And in, look at chapter 2, verse 9, at the end of his prayer. But with the voice of thanksgiving, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it does. We go into chapter 3 where he's recalled. God's patience. Let's try this again. Go to Nineveh. Jonah obeys, but what's the problem? What hasn't been sorted out? Has the theological conflict, the theological tension that Jonah has with God, has it been sorted out? No, that's going to be revealed in chapter 4. So now there is an obedience while Jonah is clutching on to anger. So at one point he's at peace disobeying. Now he's obeying and he's angry about it. And though his feet are now going in the right direction and he will open his mouth, he is not right with God. chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's what Jonah's hoping all along. Again, he only preaches about judgment. Five-word sermon in the Hebrew. He does not command the Assyrians to repent. He does not offer the possibility of relented judgment. He hates his congregation. He doesn't seem to pray. He moves through, preaches a cheap sermon because it's so short. It doesn't show any love or grace to the people. And he goes up and he sits on a hill and he just waits and hopes that God is going to destroy them. And you can read the rest of chapter three and you can note the details of one of the most amazing revivals in the world. And as Jonah waits for destruction, the Ninevites are repenting. Look at chapter 4. Actually, let's look at verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. See, all along, Jonah's giving you the answer for why he ran away. For I knew. This is what he knew about God. And he quotes Exodus. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, it's just, it'd be humorous if it weren't so horrible. Why did you pay a fare to go as far away as you possibly could? Because I knew God is love. Now, we preach that all the time. Because I know God's going to extend grace. Because I know when I go into this violent and wicked people and speak the Word of God, I know that God has already planned to extend grace to them. And I will have nothing to do with it. Keep reading. Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Remember, a preacher that just saw the largest revival in human history. I mean, we'd be blogging, right? Social media, viral, you know, look, look how God used me. It's not in Jonah's heart. Thankfully, that's not in Jonah's heart either because he's so angry. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to die than for me to observe you show grace to my enemies. Jonah's anger and requests for death are seen in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 9. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond. Well, what's Jonah angry at? What does Jonah begrudge? Jonah is angry at God's mercy. Do you do well to be angry? He's quiet. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. By the way, that's grace. Because Jonah didn't plant the seed, he didn't nurture it, but he receives the benefit of it. He is receiving the benefit of grace that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might what? Die. And said, It is better for me to die than to live. Why? Because of shade? Because God's mercy. But God said to Jonah, 
do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And already we're at the last verse of the book. And it ends with a question. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Seems to be a reference to 120,000 infants who can't discern whether this is their left or right hand yet. A whole other generation of people coming up and God desires to extend mercy to them. Here, here's the point, and we're going to just, I'm going to ask Four questions as we close. Romans 9.15 God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. When God sets His grace on something or someone, nothing can stop it. The book ends with a question, and the book, the answer to that question, will reveal your heart. But I want to start with this question. Because the contrast here is Jonah the reluctant prophet, and God full of grace and mercy. The question will determine whether you have a little Jonah inside your heart, or whether you have a Loving, merciful, missionary heart like God. But first of all, have you cried out to God for His mercy? Has there ever been a time in your life where you turned from other gods and cried out to Yahweh? Because you know what Jonah proves? That whether it's pagan sailors or a polytheistic Assyrian king who worships fish, or whether it's a disobedient Hebrew prophet... When you call out to God in, in sincerity, it is effective and God hears and God responds. Romans 10 says this, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Or, if you're thinking of Jonah, there is no distinction between Hebrew and Assyrian. Where there is no distinction between American and radical Islamic militant. The same Lord is Lord of all. Bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. All who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jonah tells you that's true. So first of all, have you called out to God for His mercy? Second, are you angry at God? Do you somehow think He has not been just? That's the theological conflict of the whole book. That God is extending grace to people whom Jonah does not think God should extend grace to. And that needs to be resolved in our hearts right away. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
Your anger at God, your bitterness at God, your resentment at God, your disapproval of his ways, your calling his character into question is not isolated to you, but it affects those around you. And so you're either going to believe what the Bible says about God and believe that in the end, as Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, or you're going to choose to believe that you're a better God than Yahweh. This is a very important point. And we need to remember that Yahweh is creator and Lord, and we are created and called to submit to his lordship. Third, do you believe in the power of God's word? There is no gospel where there is no word. We have a responsibility to give a verbal declaration of the gospel. And here's a beautiful point that was pointed out uh, by one of the commentators. He said this, if the message that Jonah was to bring could have an immediate effect upon Nineveh, it could have an immediate effect upon anybody. But what that does for us living here, what that does for us as we send people to the remotest parts of the earth, that if God's word can have an immediate effect upon wicked and violent pagan polytheists, then it can have an immediate effect upon anyone. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Because he's under obligation, he has an eagerness. He said, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The Romans were polytheists too. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Fourth question, and probably one of the most searching for us as an American church. Have you been selective in who should be the recipient of God's grace? Perhaps you don't think God's mercy should be extended to inner city gang members. Or perhaps you think God should show more favor to you because of your skin color and nationality. Or that somehow God should show more mercy to the red, white, and blue of America and not the red, white, and blue of North Korea. Because that's the same colors they use for their flag. That somehow God is obligated to us. Or perhaps in our hearts we think that ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab should, should not be the recipient of God's glory. And folks, if that's in our heart, then Jonah is in our heart. Are you at least willing to go tell those who have never heard of God's mercy to those whom you might even think don't deserve mercy? The very last verse, God says, should I not pity Nineveh? So three concluding questions. Is there anywhere God could ask you to go that you are not willing, at least willing, to go? He may never call you. He may never send you. But do you have an undivided heart to his lordship to be able to say, if, God is, if the word of the Lord came to me and called me to go to 
I'd be willing to go. Is there anywhere God could ask you to go that you're not willing to go? Secondly, is there anything God could ask you to do that you are not willing to do? He just doesn't want your feet pointing towards Nineveh. He wants your heart to be delivered and rescued from its anger and its accusations. And is there anything God could ask you to give up that you're not willing to give up? Mark Dever said, God has always been more committed to reaching the world than his own people have been. And this is the good news. And this is good news. Salvation is of the Lord. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad it didn't hinge on some disobedient preacher? Or on somebody who was prompted to tell you the good news and they didn't? Your salvation doesn't hinge on those things. God can appoint fish and wind and plants and worms who obey Him. And the verbal message will be proclaimed because it doesn't hinge on Jonah, really. Salvation is of the Lord. And God can turn His direction around in an amazing, miraculous way so that He is vomited up on the shore and says, okay, I'm going. But salvation is of the Lord. Jesus will refer back to this story of Jonah as a historic reality. And He will say, in regards to our salvation, there is something else that is going to happen. The type and then the anti-type, which is, Jesus being in the earth for three days and three nights, and then the glorious bodily resurrection, which is our vessel for salvation. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray.